Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Jeff Lee. Jeff is the co-founder of the Rocky Mountain Land Library, a residential library located on a historic Colorado ranch set in an expansive grassland basin surrounded by 13 and 14,000 foot snow-capped peaks. The Buffalo Peaks Ranch, as it's known, will eventually house a collection of over 35,000 books related to natural history, conservation, and the American West. All of these books will be dispersed throughout the ranch in houses and buildings that have been preserved and restored by a growing team of enthusiastic volunteers. The ranch will become a place where individuals can immerse themselves in a natural setting, surrounded by books for days at a time, to read, write, or work on projects related to the West's unique landscapes. The idea for the Land Library came to Jeff and his wife Anne, who's the library's other co-founder, when they visited a residential library in Europe during the mid-1990s. Given their deep love of books in the American West, Jeff and Anne immediately saw the potential for a similar concept that centered around the history and landscapes of Colorado. More than 20 years and tens of thousands of books later, their vision has become a reality. The Rocky Mountain Land Library is open for business and continuing to grow and evolve. For anyone who's listened to this podcast, you know that the Land Library is my dream come true. It combines ranches, conservation, nature, and books. So I was obviously extremely excited to chat with Jeff. In a little over an hour, we covered a ton of interesting information, including the project's backstory, the history of the ranch, and Jeff and Ann's long-term vision for the Land Library. Of course, we discussed books, and Jeff has several excellent recommendations that were brand new to me. It's worth noting that the Land Library is in the midst of a fundraising campaign, so I encourage you to visit their Kickstarter page, watch the video, and donate to the cause. I just did, so you definitely should as well. Links to everything are in the episode notes. If you love the West, love books, and love ranches, I can guarantee you'll love this episode. Hope you enjoy. Well, the way that I have started these interviews is just to kind of set the set the scene. I ask people when you meet somebody for the first time and you've never had any contact with them and they ask you that question, what do you do? How do you answer that? You stumped me right away. That's what the last guy interviewed said. <laughs> well, I, I mean, to be honest, Ed, um, I, I'll usually say, I'm a bookseller, mm-hmm. which I am. Um, my wife, Anne, and I have been at the Tatter cover for over th- um, 30 years now, 32 wow. years. Um, and then eventually I'll get into the land library because mm-hmm. it, it, it's a it's kind of a new concept for a lot of folks. And um, it's been a, actually a struggle over the years just to get the classic elevator speech that describes mm-hmm. the land library. And part of that actually is intentional. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been planning the, the land library for many years now. And all along the way, we've tried to keep it pretty loose and open-ended because we want the, the ultimate users of the land library to come with their idea of what the land library mm-hmm. is. 
But to describe the land library, would you like me to do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, it starts with uh, our personal collection of books, um, way over 30,000. And these are your personal books that you've been collecting for 20, 30 years? 30 years, 30 years. yeah. Yeah, you know, Anne and I, we always gravitated towards nature books. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Over Did the years. You have, are you, where are you from originally? Connecticut. Connecticut, the East Coast. Like yeah, me. right. And my introduction to the West was a fantastic introduction. I After college, I got a job with the U.S. Geological Survey. Okay. And our job at that time was um, topographic mapping across the West. And we were working on like the last 3 4% of the country that hadn't been converted into the current scale. Sure. And so over the years, the USGS kind of put aside some of the the landscapes that were going to be a little tougher to get into and work on and, and map. And that's when I arrived on the survey. And my introduction, you know, straight from Connecticut was working in places like Hanksville, Utah, wow. um, Deer Lodge, Montana, yep, you know, just there. all over the West in these, these wonderful wilderness areas. Mm-hmm. And I did that for four years and it just filled me up with what the West is and, and it's such a intimate relationship to the land because that was my job. Every day I had to go out, and the only thing I was looking at was the landscape and making notes and, and you know, doing the, the surveying that I needed to do. So that was like this immersion in landscape, and it was the Western landscape. Had you ever been out this way as a child before? Was that no. the first time? Yeah, this is the first time. Wow. I mean, I, I, I remember... Um, I started off at the USGS center out in Lakewood for a few weeks before they sent me out. And um, one of the the people who work, worked out in Lakewood um, showed me this map and, and started talking about Lake Powell. And I had never heard of Lake Powell, you know, uh-huh. coming from Connecticut. Um, and now, you know, places like Lake Powell are, are so central to the West. Sure. And, and the history of water and all of that. So I, it's amusing to me to think back to coming out of college and never having heard of Lake Powell. It's amazing how you can just be completely cut off on the East Coast from issues that are so central to the West. Right. Like just the, the idea of water rights. Nobody knows, has any idea what that means. It's I mean, fun. I've got attorney friends in North Carolina that have no idea – that there's such a thing as water right law, yet it's probably one of the biggest issues in the West. Oh, yeah. And it, it's amazing. Even today with the way information flows freely, it, it, it's a different world. Mm-hmm. So you were you were up there that that in Montana and all over these wild places, and then when did you start collecting the books soon thereafter? Well, you know, it's funny. Even then, I would, um, if I was up in Montana or out in Nevada, I would find bookstores. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I wasn't thinking about a land library. It was, it was mostly, it was like, I was excited to be 
in these new landscapes, um, and I wanted to learn more. Learn more about it. Yeah. I, I remember being out in um, Nevada, um, Lovelock, and in just the dead of winter, but you could still get around. So, I, you know, eventually I fell in love with that landscape, and then also the opportunity to learn about history out there and the Basque influence things like that so <laughs> had you were you a history major in college or english major geology or? geology yeah it was but just very, always a curious and a voracious reader exactly sure. yeah it, it, i was not um like a high grade scientist in college it was more you know natural history lots of biology geology and then history whenever i could take a class in that sure so it all connected um yeah. And so when did you so, – so you were collecting books yeah. just kind of along the way. How many do you think you collected over the course of your, your travels out west? You know, I bet maybe a 1,000. Really? Yeah. Had you ever done that before? Had you ever collected books on that scale or was this no, just a – No, in college, not at all. Sure. But, you know, actually thinking back on it, it was probably just a great way to spend the night in a trailer in Hanksville, Utah. Sure. You know? Yeah, definitely. And and it also connected with what I was doing every day. I'd go out, you know, around Capitol Reef, Utah, or Horseshoe Canyon, and I, I think the experience of being on the land was even richer because I could be reading about it, too. I agree. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. When I first moved out west... Um, I moved to Jackson Hole and I was traveling all through Montana and Deer Lodge and all that. And I just didn't know that much about it. But as I started reading more, everywhere I'd go, you know, I'd see something about Lewis and Clark. And I will have re- I had read Undaunted Courage, so yeah. I knew that's where they had been. And it all just took on a much richer meaning. I mean, it's right. beautiful as it is, even if you don't know anything. But I feel like the more you learn, the 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 richer even just a drive down the highway gets. That's it. And you know, I think. That was another early seed for the land library concept, you know, just giving people that opportunity to dive into books and, and learning, but also dive into the landscape. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying, it's, it just becomes a richer experience. So how did you get the idea for the, the land library? Where did that come from? That came in the mid-90s. And at that time, I was one of the buyers, um, book buyers at the Tattered Cover. And the store sent me off to the London Book Fair to find some unique titles for the store. And Anne and I had never been to England, and and we thought, you know, let's tack on a few days. We may never get back. And so far, that's true. But um, Anne had read about a residential library in Wales. Mm-hmm. And we had never heard of anything like it. It's like, what what makes this residential? And so we looked into it and um, spent a long weekend at St. Daniel's Residential Library, just over the border into Wales. And it's um, just a beautiful setting. It's this small little two-pub Welsh village, and the library is William Gladstone's old library, okay. the, the prime minister. Sure. And 
people that were staying there, there were a few folks like us who were just coming in and out for a few days. There were other people there for a few weeks, a couple of months, mm -hmm. and they were working on different kinds of projects. There was one American um, researcher who was working on a book about Charles Darwin. Oh, and, really? And Darwin, you know, his, his country was just over the border um, in Shrewsbury. So we really, we really fell in love with that place and thought, wouldn't it be great to have that same sort of concept in Colorado, mm -hmm. where you've got these great books, people can use the resource of the books, but also set it in a, in a place where they can use, the library almost becomes like a field station where they can go off and um, explore the landscape, just immer immerse themselves in the landscape like I was able to do um, working for the geological survey. Sure. So I, we came back with that notion, and we realized at that point we had a lot of books, I bet 5,000 5, or so. But from that point on, you know, the books that we would bring in would be almost exclusively related to we want to see these books on the land library shelf someday for people. Sure. So that really started growing the land library to the current state of more than 35,000. So just from a practical standpoint, where do you keep all these books? Uh, yeah, you know, at this point, I would estimate maybe 98% of the books are in storage. Okay. We, we've got a, a lot of books up at the ranch that we use as display, really, just sure. to give people a feel for the breadth and the different types of books. So there's a quite a, quite a lot, obviously, in storage. Um, we have some of our volunteers that might have like 100, 150 boxes in their basement. Mm -hmm. We have one amazing Denver company um, called Acme Distribution Center, and years ago, I think it was 2012, we needed to move all the books that were in our basement, mm -hmm. and that's where the majority of the books were. And, and it's kind of a long story, but our landlord had passed away, and his family didn't want to get into the real estate business, so they needed to sell, sell the place where we were living, and we realized there's no way that we're going to get this kind of space again at Denver's rental prices. Sure. So we started looking around for a place to store these books. But even before finding that, we had to start packing up. And, and that actually turned out to be just a very positive period for the land library because... All the volunteers came out of the woodwork and came and helped us pack up these boxes. And Ed, I, you never want to trust me with numbers because I estimated that, oh, I bet we've got about 600 boxes. It was over a thousand boxes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but lo and behold, in that process of, you know, working for a month to pack everything up, 
there was a Denver Post article about what the land library was trying to do and, you know, where are these books going to go. And this company, Acme Distribution Center, heard about it, stepped forward and um, donated free trucking and free storage all these years. And that was, you know, that could have really been... um, game changer in a bad way for the land library sure if all of a sudden yeah we've got the books we've got the vision what we want to do but now all of a sudden we can't afford to store them that that sort of thing so that's that's the story of where the books are now we're really excited that very soon we'll be able to bring even more books up to Buffalo Peaks Ranch. So let's talk about Buffalo Peaks Ranch. Yeah. Can you kind of give a, just give the people listening an idea of where it is, the the landscape, because uh, people from Colorado are familiar with this area, but for those that aren't, can you just right. kind of give an overview of the actual property? Sure. It's right, it's roughly in the middle of South Park, which is this enormous think it's 50 mile long mountain basin and it Colorado is blessed with um, the San Luis Valley which is a similar basin and then um, South Park and North Park and South Park is I I always think of it as you come up over Kenosha Pass Mm -hmm. and you've been driving you know, from Denver up and down in the mountains, and then all of a sudden you hit Kenosha, and you look out onto this sudden landscape, which is has a flavor of the prairie and the mountains. Yes, and, I agree. Yeah, it's basically the, it's this basin, high mountain grassland surrounded by mountains. So it always. It never gets old for me going me over Kenosha. I probably I'm up there at least at least once a month, more than that, driving through over Kenosha Pass, and it never gets old. Right. And every season, it's it's a different view. Um, but yeah, I think that's one of the I think that's one of the coolest uh, kind of drives into a valley of anywhere out. I agree. It's not the you know definitely not the most dramatic scaling of a mountain pass, but just the effect of all of a sudden this enormous grassland opens up in front of you it's wonderful i think it's unique for colorado as well because you've got it kind of hits everything that makes colorado special it's got a huge grassland ecosystem then it's got huge mountains and it's got you can see some 14ers from there some almost 14ers um it's got great rivers and streams running through there great wildlife pretty much anything when you think of colorado even eastern colorado where it's just grasslands south park is has a little bit of everything, it seems like. So I think that... And so when you were looking for the ranch, were you focused on South Park or were you thinking any anywhere would work? Yeah, we really didn't have a focus. We we even thought, you know, if it turns out to be a prairie land library, that's fine too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, eastern Colorado. And so when Ann and I came back from England with that idea, um, one of our first steps was to start our site search and start talking with um, individuals, organizations across the state. And we literally went across the state. 
we Woodland Park, Salida, um, Steamboat Springs, Leadville. Yep. Many, many um, close matches, but we could never um, get it all together as far as like working with the right agency or um, say a ranch was going to take too much um, funds to mm-hmm. to get it back on its feet. And we weren't restricting ourselves to ranches either. It, it was, you know, we'd be happy to set up shop in, you know, Main Street of West Cliff, something like sure. that. And that, that was one of the possibilities. But we we were talking with some friends in the historic preservation community and they recommended that we get in touch with Park County mm-hmm. and their thinking was at that time and still Park County is known across the state if not the nation for its heritage tourism yes you know like South Park it, as you described it it's just a, a very special place but it doesn't have industry. It doesn't have um, a, really a, a mining industry at this point. Um, it's got an amazing mining heritage, but um, and it also doesn't. People don't go there for skiing or whitewater rafting. So Park County wisely, I think they just decided they wanted to feature the the natural and the cultural heritage of. South Park of Park County. And when we heard that, it was like, it was one of those, you know, light bulb goes off moments because in a way that describes the land library. Mm-hmm. You know, it's natural history and heritage for sure, but it's also cultural. Yes. You know, it's like, how, how do people make a living on the land and how do they impact the land? So the more we looked at South Park with its amazing ranching history, mining history, fur trade, um, early Native American settlement, we thought this this is an ideal place. And it's close to um, the Front Range communities. Yes. Yeah, it, and, uh, you know, another benefit just from a practical standpoint is that land in South Park is relatively cheap compared to, you know, just over the mountains, obviously in Breckenridge or even in the, you know, the Arkansas River Valley. It's, it's a, um, you can get a, a good bit of land there for less than, than right. a lot of other places. Right. Um, and one other, speaking of the heritage there, I think that, that South Park City Museum they have, mm-hmm. that's one of the coolest things I've seen in a oh, long yeah. time. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's basically, uh, they bring it. They brought in all these historical buildings from all the different little ghost towns around South Park. Put them on a main street, and I'll tell you, that's I, that's one of the most interesting museums. It's great I've been to, to walk through, yeah, for sure. So, yeah. one question I had, you know, thinking about you, how you chose this to be on a ranch. What do you think people will get out of being spending time on an actual former former working ranch versus, say, spending time on a cabin in the middle of the complete untouched wilderness like a a walden kind of thing versus the ranch i think i think that's that's really neat to think about yeah i i totally agree and i think like so much with the land library it it kind of evolves over time and at the early days i probably was thinking more 
the way you described a, a Walton-like atmosphere. You know, the farther away from the little town, the better, and all of that. You know, more immediate connection with the landscape. But over the years, I, I've really come to love the idea of people being on the ranch. They're, they're still incredibly connected to the landscape, but they're also connected to the history of the place, the, the human history. And um, I, think, I think that's really important as we all think about our relationship to the land. It's not just the gorgeous vistas. It's really good to think about the people who have come before, what they did, and um, I think that's going to be all visible at the ranch. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's kind of romantic to think about when there weren't any people there, but the reality is even before white people were there, there were Native Americans there, and you know, I guess you go back 15,000 years and there have been people there and that, so that's the reality of it right um, and I think it's uh, if you dig into it it's a pretty rich history that's, that's interesting to learn about and for the most part I think of you know ranchers that have been successful are great stewards of the land because um, they have to be yeah if they're not they go out of business and go hungry right. <laughs> and right. so um, yeah so, so where do things stand with the land library now? I know you're in the midst of a, a fundraiser. Um, where do they stand now? And, and for example, what do you see happening this summer? I know you're planning to move some, move a lot more books up there. Right. Well, yeah. The last two years, um, once we got our lease signed at so you've got a, Ranch. a 99 year lease with the city of Aurora, who owns the property. That's, That's right. Correct. Okay. And they were anxious along with Park County to see something happen with the the old buildings that would be of community use. And that's really where we came in and um, both governmental entities have been really supportive that's and great. helpful on yeah, all of that. So um, the last two years after the lease signing we started renovation and also programming. You know, having classes up there, field trips. Um, we had our first star night up there. Oh, that's great! Dark, the I bet dark that's a great skies, place to yeah, look at stars. definitely. Yeah. Um, it was wonderful, and and the clouds cooperated too. Um, this year, we want to do more of the same and really ramp up our renovation work, and that that's the goal of the Kickstarter crowdfunding campaign that we've got going right now. And we'll have links to that on the webpage. Oh, so great. Can click through great. And they need to donate. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I got to say, it, just the Kickstarter page itself is a great introduction to the land library. Yes. There's a video. Um, you'll see some of the, the work that our architects have been um, coming up with, the different designs. Um, so, we're, we're just excited for folks to see that. But mm-hmm. as you say, do, donations would be great, too. Because yes. this is, you know, we keep moving forward no matter what. But my feeling is the books are so great. The landscape is so inspiring. I really hate to see too many more years go by without people benefiting from this. 
So I watched the the Kickstarter campaign video, which was great, and I'll have that on the site. Um, so the idea now is you're restoring an old uh, an old structure. I think the cookhouse, cookhouse, yeah. And so in that you'll have a library. You'll have two rooms so that people can come up, spend the night, you know, stay as long as they want, as long as the, the reservation is, and and really immerse themselves in the landscape. And that. And you're hoping to have that done by the end of the summer? Is that that's our goal? Okay. Yeah, and it's going to have uh, you know really good kitchen, a good big big old table that can be used for you know food and gatherings and classes, mm-hmm. and then one of the the wings of the cook's house will be the ranch's first library. So right. that'll be exciting yes. to get that up. And I should mention that the the ranch, it's in relatively good shape, um, but the buildings haven't been occupied for closing in on 30 years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we need to do rewiring and, and things like that. And we're also eventually going to get to the stage where we'll have a very sustainable energy system. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it, it, that's definitely what we're aiming at because... That's really what the land library is all about. Sure. And if we can't do those smart steps, then we're not reading our own books. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's that yeah. is very um, that's very true. Yeah. What do you know about the history of the ranch? We've been learning more and more, which is kind of exciting because it's not like um, it's written down in one book and that's gospel. So what what we know is that. Um, it was settled in 1861, though we may need to change that to 1862 because we've been coming across other information. But it was settled by a young French couple. They had come over from France and settled for a while in New Orleans, Cincinnati, eventually Leavenworth, Kansas. Mm-hmm. And that was right about the time when South Park and in, I imagine Cripple Creek and places like that were really expanding their, their mining in a big way. Sure. So people were rushing to these areas, including South Park. And the Garros, they decided they'd go out and be part of this. And their intention was never to be miners, but sort of be the supporting players to the miners, yep. like ranchers or shopkeepers. And they did both. And reading about their early days at the at um, what was then called Garo Ranch, um, it reminds me of what you hear about ranchers today. You know, a lot a lot of ranchers have to have another job in town, things like that. Well, the Garos were doing the same thing. It took a while for them to to really settle in and be ranchers mm-hmm. full time. But eventually they did, and they, they grew the ranch to, um, I think, 1,500 acres. Yeah, 1,500 acres. And it was, in the 1861, it was virtually the first ranch in South Park. Wow. Yeah, it was one of the first. I think Sam Hartzell might have gotten there probably a few months before the Garros. After about, I think about 12 years, Adolph passed away and left Marie Garot, a widow, and 
the mother of 11 children. <laughs> I know. It's like, so her story is huge for the ranch, obviously, but also for South Park. I mean, she she took that ranch and turned it into one of the biggest, one of the the most profitable and just a tough woman. We've I, got one picture of her, and she is amazing. I just can't. I say this. I think I say this on every one of these podcasts, but I cannot comprehend the level of toughness of those people. I agree. I mean, and they came from France, right? And it sounds like they went all over the country, and they went up in South Park, which South Park is, is beautiful, and I love it. But the winters in South Park are no joke. They're no joke now. And so you think about in 1862 yeah, um, with 11 kids. Right. It, and it's not hard many neighbors. Yeah. It, you know, you, the Ute Indians were still settled there. And there were, you know, they would have interactions and they were all, all friendly ones. But um, that just shows you how fresh that country was sure. at that time. And I think what you said about the ranchers in the 1800s having the same challenges as a lot of ranchers today, I think that's a, a very keen observation. And, you know, I've been to some cattle brandings before. And when you, when you go to those things, it's basically the exact same scene you would have seen 150 years ago and it's the the neighbors come together the only difference is they have propane torches to heat up the branding irons uh-huh. versus a campfire yeah but i think it's um it's really neat to, to think about and you think about the buildings on your ranch and they were they were there you know they've been there for decades and decades and decades and the landscape is basically the same yeah so it's not much has changed um one question I, i've asked a lot of folks on this podcast. I'm I'm working the conservation, the land conservation world as well, and I'm always interested in talking to people who are closely connected to the land about their thoughts on conservation. And that word can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so I was wondering how you would define conservation. And I know you've read a ton about it, and then now you're closely connected with the land. Now is there is there a way that you would define it? That's a great question, Ed, um, and I, sh- I should have an, an easy answer in my head. I don't, but I think when I hear conservation, for me, it may just come down to care for the land, mm-hmm. care for the earth, care for the, the wildlife, and, and every life form that we share that piece of land with. Sure. I, I think, th- I think good... it's like that, but it's... I think conservation and, say, the works of somebody like Aldo Leopold, they're really central to why the Land Library started and what we hope to accomplish. It's just help connect people to nature and the land and can connect them so well that they just can't help but care for it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think you've established that message well and just... From watching your progress online, it's amazing how many people just kind of come out of the woodwork and have been attracted to this thing you've created. And and so that's one question I had. Can you give me an example of somebody that, that has reached out or come and helped on the ranch that is somewhat surprising to you? Somebody that you would have <laughs> never imagined would end up yeah. out there? Well, I would say in general, like Anne and I, that has been one of the joys of especially the last many years with the land library is all the people that come to it 
And it can be organizations that get excited about, you know, having their own programs at the ranch um, or individuals and they volunteer hard labor up at the ranch because we, we have lots of volunteer work days. Um, we have especially noticed and are especially inspired by all the young people that have been coming and it helped put aside at least for a while that question of you know here we are setting up a library in in age of digital information and all that um and we thought well if young people are excited by these books and get the connection to the landscape um we may be onto something and that's what we found but you asked about an individual and over the last two years, we've worked with this wonderful fellow nonprofit, Historic Corps. Yes. Historic Corps, excuse me. And they, what they do is they bring professional carpenters, um, historic preservation people together with volunteers, and they work on projects of, you know, some sort of community interest and benefit. And they picked Buffalo Peaks as one of their projects. So over the course of the last few summers, we've met some just amazing people. Ed, you would love them. Mm -hmm. That would be a great podcast to, to get historic or people around the table talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we need to do that. Yeah. Because they, I mean, they come, they're already sold on the land library idea because they're all about you know, learning about the history of a place, and they're just wonderful. But last summer, um, or two summers ago, we had this um, ta tax accountant from Las Vegas, and he emailed me before coming and with lots of great questions and enthusiasm. So Bob eventually came out, and he's also a photographer, Oh, wow. So he loved the ranch, but his favorite photography is what he calls bar photography. He goes into a, the local tavern and takes pictures of people. I guess you get yeah. a lot of practice in Las Vegas. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he did the same thing in Fairplay. So, a little different scene in Fairplay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so Bob, you know, he had a great summer. And then he came out again this past summer and it's like the most amazing thing. He said, you know, the tax season ends around April. And as soon as that, his busy time ended, he started getting in shape to come back to Buffalo Peaks Ranch. Yep. And Bob is in his 70s. Oh, wow. But does amazing work. And so he actually started getting in shape. And he said, I want you to know this ranch has changed my life. Can you believe that? Yeah. I mean, when people say things like that, it just it humbles you and and fires you up. Sure. It's to keep like, going. okay, yeah. <laughs> this is not going to go away. Yeah. We're, we're going to keep at it. Because if it can impact somebody like Bob out in Las Vegas and so many other people and, and get them really excited and... 
you know, connected to the land in a quiet, deep way. That's what we're aiming for. Sure. Well, so when you were in Europe and you saw this land library, you're definitely not the first American to go through there and see it. And you're not the first American to say, hey, this is a good idea. I'd like to do this. So what do you think gave you the, I don't know, the the power or the the motivation to, to follow through on it? Because a lot of people have good ideas, but the execution of the ideas is the trick. And so you've executed this. I mean, and it's been a, a long kind of organic process. What why do you think you were able to, to make it happen? I mean, obviously, passion. and There are a million reasons I could say why, why it's worked. But why do you think it's, it's worked? You've been able to keep your focus on this for, I don't know, over 20 years now. Yeah, over 20 years. Um, I, I think it's got to have a lot to do with, well, people like Bob that I just talked about. Sure. It's like people's reaction and desire to see this happen. Mm-hmm. And also the feeling that as much as we need a land library out there now to help us, you know, connect us to land and community, we're going to need it even more in the future. I agree. You know, and, you know, for one thing, we're barraged every day with information and it's hard to turn that off and slow down mm-hmm. and and get more connected to nature's nature's rhythms instead of ours so i yeah i think that's those two things that it's not only an idea that we love it's an idea that we think is going to really help mm-hmm. in the future and then seeing people's reactions to it yeah they didn't give us a chance to back out. <laughs> You're locked in now. <laughs> right, right. There's no backing out. <laughs> no turning back. Um, so I've got some somewhat selfish questions that I want to ask you, and I think other people will, will get a lot out of it as well, mainly your recommendations on books. Huh. And so if, if you had to recommend a few books about the history of the West, say somebody like you in your 20s from Connecticut before you knew anything about the West – are there are there some books that come to mind right now that you would say these are the the book these, these are books that really impacted me? I mean, right. I know you, you're working with such a huge number you've read, but just any that that pop out. You know what I I bet I will think of a good history book. I mean, there there, there there's wonderful authors that have taught me a lot. Everybody from David Lavender to you know Wallace Stegner's. Um, Beyond the Hundredth Meridian. Yes, that's a great You know, one. books like that. Um, Bernard DeVoto. When I think of books to recommend, though, I, I usually think about... It comes down to people's individual experience of the sure. land. Sure. Like that. And there's a few that I would definitely recommend. In fact, um, come to think of it, our first book club in the summer up at the ranch was um, a book by William Dubois, and he's a northern New Mexico author, mm-hmm. and it's called The Walk. I haven't even heard of that. Oh, uh, so Ed, I think I you'd like it a lot. Okay. I mean, William Dubois, he's just a beautiful writer. I mean, just his sentences, you want to 
go back right away to and sure. read over again. He's that kind of a writer. And the walk is just about this simple loop walk that he used to go on from his little farm shack in northern New Mexico. And he just describes that walk through it, through his life, through the seasons. And he just gets into so many deep questions about, you know, the people who settled in that area, the Hispanic influence and, um, you know, some of his own family um, drama, dramas. Um, it's just, it's a beautiful book of someone deeply knowing a landscape. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. And I've never heard of it. Yeah. So this, that's awesome. Yeah, um, give it a try. Is there, I read a ton of biographies, and I'm wondering if there's one character in the West that sticks out in your mind and, and would be a good biography to read. Oh, that's um, a and great it question. It doesn't have to be somebody famous. I mean, it doesn't have to be, it could be just some real unique person that, that yeah. people may not have heard of. Well, a couple pop in my head. One is a great book by Robert Laxalt mm-hmm. called Sweet Promised Land. And Robert Laxalt was probably the best-known author coming out of Nevada. Okay. And it's all about his father, who was a Basque sheep herder uh-huh. in Nevada. And he's got great descriptions of his life, his father's life. But the bulk of the book is is he accompanies his father back to the Pyrenees, back to the Basque homeland. Interesting. And so you're talking, you end up learning about and experiencing two different landscapes, but the same culture throughout. And Robert Laxalt, he's a very good writer. Okay. So he really keeps you going. And then the other, they're actually two Easterners when I think about it, but I know you like Timothy Egan. Yes. Book. Yeah, he's great. And one of my favorite books of Timothy Egan was The Big Burn. Yes, that's you know, a great About one. that amazing Western wildfire that just blasted across the West. Yes. But he starts with this just vivid and fun description of both Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot. Mm-hmm. You know, very different people, but they really admired each other and then proceeded to to work on initiatives through the, the, the then brand new Forest Service that has shaped the West forever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, those two unique characters and, and Timothy Egan's de- description of them has always stayed with me. He's a great writer. He is. Um, and I think that book... Is is very it's great no matter what, but with all this controversy going on right now about the pub, potential public land sell off, I think that book's even more important now because there a lot of these politicians are saying that the, the Antiquities Act has been misused, right? With, and and there's just and if you really want to understand what in the world they're talking about, you need to read that book because Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford were the ones that put the the, the legislation in place that is still working today mm-hmm. and um, I think that's a great book and, and Gifford was a 
strange guy. You oh, know, like he was. Talked to his his wife passed away, and for years he would have conversations with her. Yeah, and he would write in his notebook, you know, in his diary, he would put a little mark for every day she came to visit. You know, and and that was eye opening. What? Yeah. It? Well, the the thing that I, I think about that and, and Teddy Roosevelt is. Guys like that, they couldn't be politicians today because they would be seen as being insane. Well, maybe they could because we might have an insane person. <laughs> but but it's um, I just I think yeah. reading about those politicians, it, it politicians and the, the the legislation that went in place, it's very important to understand what's going on now. Oh, it's really I mean, just the opportunity to read histories like that. I think it just gives you a whole different view of what's going on today and i think it'll make you feel better about today because uh-huh. you see how rough things were back then right because you know when when tr was trying to uh, put a lot of these uh, national monuments in place he was get he got stopped by um by his, by congress and he so he just went in the the office one night he and gifford and went through millions and millions of acres and locked it in did with they, executive power, they call those the midnight forests. I, I think, think so. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. they they did it. They did late it. There the was night. a deadline coming up, and they they just stayed up for like thirty six hours straight right. and, and enacted all this stuff. And and uh, so it for me at least, it makes me feel better about some some of the political climate today. <laughs> In books and learning like that, you know, one of the things it does it it just gets you literally out of your bubble. Yeah, I agree yeah, completely. So, and, and thinking about um, that, yeah, your time isn't the only time and people went through similar things or this is what they did when they were faced with the same challenge that you have right now. Uh, yeah, it, it steadies people. I, I think. agree. Yeah. It's funny because in, in high school and college, I, you know, I had to take history and I just didn't really get much out of it but now it's I mean I think it's one of the most important things in my life to, to really give me a perspective on things and I bet you get I mean you're energized by it obviously Definitely. and I think when history becomes more of a story mm-hmm. that it really connects to people and I think that's probably why somebody like um, Timothy Egan is so good at it that he, he's just a great storyteller he is and I think one one recommendation I always have for people who want to learn about history but they don't like reading history books is read biographies because that's that's kind of how I got started is being obsessed with Theodore Roosevelt and you just learn history by learning about these people and I'm obviously interested in people which is why I started this podcast and but I, I do think you know you learn about him and then that'll take you in a different you know then learn about one of his his buddies like Gifford and then that'll take you to read The Big Burn and then you know it, it's a uh, it's all these little divergent streams that come from one person. I think. And that's actually a good description of how the land library collection has grown. Mm-hmm. It's those connections, you know. And I'm sure I had the same experience that you just described where I'm reading about Teddy Roosevelt and there's this side character, Gifford Pinchot, that is really intriguing. And before I know it, the land library has a shelf full of Gifford Pinchot books. Yeah, yeah. So it just builds, in, in I guess, in an organic way, but um, we're always doing that with books. And one of the things we do, any new book that comes through, is we look at the bibliography. Yes. And just kind of try to 
sort out the network mm-hmm. of knowledge that's out there. But it, it's the same thing as what we were just saying. It's like Teddy Roosevelt leads you to Gifford Pinchot, leads you to, you know, a young Forest Service ranger named Aldo Leopold, <laughs> and then the whole world opens up at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's really neat. Sometimes when I go in bookstores, I almost get an overwhelmed feeling because I see all these different things that I want to read, and I know I just don't... No matter how much time I have, it right. would be enough. I know. Um, it, I guess that's a good a good feeling to have. Curiosity. Yeah. Um, so, oh, and I'll have links to all those books, and I will have the caveat that I link to Amazon, but don't go to Amazon. Get the info, and then go to your local bookstore. Right. That's great, Ed. Yes. Yeah, because we. That means a lot to us. That I think lo- it's that important. Local. Yeah. I love Tattered Cover. I live in Boulder, and so the Boulder Bookstore is kind of my local. Oh, they're place. great. They're great, but um, I, I feel like those are so important. To com- yeah. they're, they're community centers. Right, right. I, mean, I go see speakers at the Boulder Bookstore. Oh, um, yeah. I, I go in there at least every other week. And um, so for people that are listening, get the info on Amazon, but then go to your local bookstore. That'd be great. Um, I've got a few kind of quick questions that I've been asking every guest I have, and it's been fun to kind of compare and contrast the, the answers I get. Um this is going to be a this is a hard question for you, I would guess. But is there a specific book that in the last few years you've you've recommended or given as a gift to others? And it doesn't have to be about the American West or natural history or anything like that. Just a a book that has has meant a lot to you, and you felt like it was a, a good one to pass along to to folks that that you care about. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah. If I could, could I do two? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. There's one that it's not actually a book. It's a long essay that Wendell Berry wrote um, originally in his book, Long-Legged House. And it it since has turned up in some of his collected works, but it's a long essay called A Native Hill. Okay. And it's set in Kentucky where, you know, Wendell's, family is from and where Wendell still is today and it's just a beautiful description of a place Mm -hmm. and his connection to it his family's connection and his connection and Wendell Berry as I said about earlier authors beautiful writer but very complex thoughts Yes, and he takes you different places that you don't expect to go but he I mean he's got a poet's heart he is a poet and it all comes together in a really beautiful way and I was blown away blown away when I read that one because I had read a lot of Wendell Berry but I got to a native hill and I thought oh my god this is a whole other level I haven't read that I've read read a good bit of his stuff but not that I've also found with, with Wendell Berry that you can read something and then a few years later read it again and it'll take on a whole new meaning if you've had new experiences. Yeah, I, would, I could imagine that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Well, that's a great one. What's the second? The other one, um, it's really coming from out of left field because it, it's from a young British nature writer, mm-hmm. Robert McFarlane. Okay. And he's written a number of books um, at this point, but one of his early books was called The Wild places okay and it's about McFarlane going across the British Isles 
in including Ireland and trying to find some of the last wild places in Great Britain and Ireland. And he 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 has this amazing talk about immersion in landscape. I mean, he just he's up in the Hebrides and wow. he just drops down at night in a sleeping bag, no tent and cool. just experiences the the storms and the weather and all of that. And he just he's one of those writers when I first read it, I thought I I can't think of somebody who describes landscape quite like this. Wow. And I won't, won't say it's the best because I think reading is such a individual, personal relationship that I, I usually don't think of best. But I know when an author is doing something really different. Sure. And he, he's, he's just a wonderful, wonderful writer. And I'd love for him someday to write something about America, but if all he does is write in England, it's the way he writes is so universal. And and so that's the book over the last couple of years that I recommend the most to people. That's a great one. Yeah. And again, that's a new one to me, so I'm glad I asked. Um, you've you obviously spent a lot of time outdoors and a lot of time, you know, on land. Is there a certain experience that sticks out in your mind as being the most powerful experience you've you've had in the outdoors? And it could be crazy, scary, fun, <laughs> funny. I mean, is there? You know, when I ask this question, I've gotten everything from being chased by grizzly bears to uh, you know some uh, special fishing fishing or hunting trip with their father. So, right, is, right. Is there a specific experience that sticks out? I love that. Um, I may get to a specific one. I do, I've always been amazed when I described earlier about working for the U.S. Geological Survey for four years, and it was 24 hours a day, or, you know, it it was full-time in the field. And to this day, there's things from that experience that flash through my head. Sure. You know, you just, you remember some stream that you hiked up or um, some desert landscape in Utah. And and it just, for me, that points to how important your relationship to the land is. And it just, it just sticks with you. And I think it points to the importance of immersion, you know, going in deep, which is what you're doing in the land library. Right. You know, there are a lot of people who have never spent days on end quiet uh, you know away from from all the modern conveniences cars and all that kind of right. so i think being able to have these immersive experiences they're key i mean i, I the same i did this i did a semester with the national outdoor leadership school during college and so it was you know 90 days of of being in the wilderness and i think about it every day yeah it um, comes back to you and i think you can get you don't have to do 90 days to to get the the benefits i think which is why the land library is so important um, and I think Ed, that that might be another. It's still not answering your question, but just what you said about, um, you know, that immersion, and you know what happens to to yourself when you're out long enough that all of a sudden you feel different. Yes, you're thinking different, and I think that's 
one of the great elusive things for all of us in the modern day. But if we can get some of that back, I think I think that's what people need. Yeah, and like you said, it's only going to be more and more important. Yeah, we're talking about you know having cell phones implanted in their heads. <laughs> no thanks on that. Yeah. You have to scan people at the land, land library to make sure that's not the case <laughs> in twenty years. Um, do you have a favorite location in the West? I'm guessing I might know this, but um, the funny thing is, I ask people all these questions, but I don't have answers. Like if somebody <laughs> asked me, I would know the answer. That's, get that's an mean of you. <laughs> I should figure it out in case somebody asked me. No. I, I love the questions, but yeah, they they are tough. It's hard to pick your favorite. Um, I gotta say, I mean, Ann and I and everybody in the land library, we love South Park. We also love Denver, mm-hmm. and I get excited about nature in the city sure. in a big way. Um, so those are like currently those are the two favorite landscapes would yep. be. Denver and South Park, but I may have to say that the landscape that really turned me on the most and led me towards eventually the land library idea would be um, the Four four Corners, Canyonlands, Capitol Reef. That's a special place. Yeah. Anywhere where there's pinyon and juniper. Yeah. You know, Mesa Verde. I've never been there. Oh, go. 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 Yeah, it's wonderful. Been. It's wonderful. I mean, just, just the Mesa itself is is just wonderful landscape. And then you start walking around and you see the cliff house and things like that. You'll love it. Cool. Um, and then final question of these quick questions is, what do you think the biggest challenge and or opportunity um, that's currently facing the American West is um, is there is there a specific thing that sticks out in your head an issue that that is going to be of importance one way or the other? Well, um, I think back to you know how we how we treat the land. Mm-hmm. It's real simple. And number one, we need to be connected to the land. And then number two, we need to do the right things by the land. Mm-hmm. So I'd say both. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's important. And I think, personally, I think the only way to get people to understand that concept is they need to get out and experience it. Um, and a lot of people don't want to go, you know, on a five, ten-day backpacking trip in the middle of the woods, but I think they can accomplish that at a place like the Land Library, going out mm-hmm. and, and being, having that immersive experience. Right. Um, it's hard to get your head around it if you've never done it with anything. Um, it's like this Gessner book that you have sitting here we're talking about. You, you have to get a, to know a place to love it, and then once you love it, you're willing to protect it. That's it. Um, That's it. So next to last question, if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast, and it's basically people who love the American West in one way or the other, whether that's through sports, art, conservation, uh, anybody who's got a connection to the American West, if you could make a request of them, what would it be? Well, to to get to know the place you live and to love it. Mm-hmm. And we talk about that a lot. The 
experiences that we hope that people have at Buffalo Peaks Ranch, that there are experiences that they can take back to where, wherever they live. And they'll feel, you know, more in tune with the nature around them, the history around them, if they live in Pocatello or wherever. Come back to Denver, you look at your walk around City Park in a totally different way. And you think about what it took to create a city like this in a thoughtful way. So yeah, I think I think it's that uh, just to have people connect more with the places they live. That's a great answer. So how can people connect with you and the land library? What's the easiest way? Um, obviously, the Kickstarter campaign, which I'll have links to. What what else? Um, yeah, just keep in touch with us. Um, our website is landlibrary.org, and um, my email is Jeff at landlibrary.org. And any thoughts you have, you know, it's still, we're moving forward and um, we're always open for new ideas and the Land Library keeps changing in good ways. Well, keep up the great work. I'm very, very excited about this. I can't wait to visit. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.